Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, when I recorded the podcast or my last podcast a couple of days ago, the U.S. stock market was looking pretty vulnerable. We had a very, very weak close. We sold off and closed right on the lows. And so the markets looked like they were set up for some follow through selling the next day, which I mentioned and we got. We actually had a 500 point sell-off in the Dow yesterday. In fact, intraday, I think at one point, we may have been down about 700 points, not exactly sure where the low was, uh, but it was a very weak day. They came out right out of the gate selling. And in fact, we followed through today. At one point this morning, the Dow was off another 450 points before we had a reversal and we ended up closing positive 377. So what is that? About an 800 point rally off the lows uh, leading the the comeback were the financials which of course were leading the decline you know many of these big banks took out their uh march lows yesterday and then took those lows out again this morning uh before recovering today you know the airlines they crashed below most of them uh their march lows as well so a lot of weakness in the market of course masking a lot of that as a few of these big fang type names in the nasdaq that people are hanging out in uh, because they're perceived to be the beneficiaries of everybody uh you know uh sheltering at home and not going out and so people are taking refuge in these stocks and they dominate right the indexes so that kind of provides a kind of false sense of security with respect to where the market actually is. But I want to get into talking about some of the catalysts for yesterday's decline, one of which was Ben, uh, not Ben Bernanke, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, because he uh, gave a talk yesterday or a QA and a or whatever it was. Uh, but number one, uh, Powell threw some cold water on the speculation that negative interest rates are coming. Remember, I spoke about the fact that the markets are already pricing in negative rates as soon as January of 2021. And so now you have Powell for the first time officially addressing uh, those expectations uh, by throwing a, a wet blanket on them by saying, hey, the Fed, we're not considering negative rates we're not going to go there and of course just because they say that now doesn't mean when push comes to shove they won't go there uh, but for now they're trying to press back against that narrative and i think that may be one of the reasons 
that the market went down. Now, of course, President Trump didn't waste any time uh, in countering that with his own uh, tweet in favor of negative interest rates. In fact, Donald Trump referred to negative rates as a gift, right? Hey, this is a great gift. I mean, look, we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. We should just accept this fantastic gift. Why is Jerome Powell not wanting to accept the present, right, of of uh, negative interest rates. And, you know, from Donald Trump's perspective, as a debtor, he clearly appreciates that negative interest rates are a gift, right? They're the, a gift from the lender to the borrower. Because normally, when you borrow money, you have to pay to borrow money. Because the people who are lending it to you don't get the use of their money. Instead of using it themselves, they're lending it to you. Now, most people prefer to have things now, right, rather than in the future, right? There's that time value of money, and that's why there's an interest rate, right? If I'm going to defer consumption, if I have money and I am not going to use it today to satisfy some of my needs, uh, if I'm going to lend it to you instead so that you could use it for whatever needs you have, you need to pay me for deferring uh, that uh, consumption or that alternate investment use. I could have done something else with my money, but I loaned it to you. So that present value, that opportunity cost of money needs to be paid for. Now, of course, you have to supplement the interest rate with a premium to cover any inflation that would erode away the value of the money I loaned you between the time I lend it and the time you repay it, right? So you have to add to the time value of money a premium to recover the purchasing power that's lost over that time horizon. Now, of course, uh, that premium is based on the borrower and the lender's perception of how bad inflation is going to be. Now, I think everybody is wrong. I think the premiums are much too low because I think uh, everybody is underestimating just how much purchasing power money is going to lose. And so therefore, uh, the inflation premium is, is being mispriced. But of course, you need to pay some money to borrow. Well, negative interest rates turns that on its head where now somebody with money is paying you to take that money off their hands. Hey, I got all this money. You take it and I'll pay you. Don't I don't want it back for five years or 10 years and I'm going to pay you money every year that you take this money off my hands, which is completely nonsense. But that's what negative rates are about. Now, from Donald Trump's perspective, right, he's a real estate developer. He borrows a lot of money and normally has to pay interest to do that. And hopefully he can earn a return on his real estate that exceeds the cost of borrowing the money. But if he can get the money for free, in fact, if he can be paid to borrow that money, well, that's a fantastic gift. And so he thinks that since it's a gift for him, it's a gift for the whole country if we have negative interest rates. Now, I agree the U.S. government is the world's biggest debtor, right? I mean, the U.S. government owes a hell of a lot more money than Donald Trump, right? So as the biggest debtor in the world, in the history of the world, the United States would benefit from negative interest rates. After all, we got $25.2 trillion of national debt. How much, you know, could we get paid on that? I mean, if we could get paid, what, even negative uh, 20 basis points on uh, $25 trillion, right? We could make a fortune, if we could get paid to have $25 trillion worth of debt. So that would be a gift if we could actually find somebody dumb enough 
uh, to give us that gift because that would mean that they would lose the amount of that gift because negative interest rates transfer uh, purchasing power from the lender to the borrower. Now, if the United States could actually find some idiots around the world dumb enough to pay us to take their money off their hands, right? That they, they don't even need the money and they're just good riddance, take this money and we will pay you to take this money. If Donald Trump could actually find some idiot anywhere in the world in the private sector who is actually willing to do it, then I'm all for it, go for it, right? That would be a gift if some idiot were willing to do it. But the reality is people may be dumb, but they're not that dumb. Nobody is going to pay the U.S. government to borrow their money. The only one dumb enough to do it would be Jerome Powell, would be the Federal Reserve. That's the only entity that would enable negative interest rates. So the only way the U.S. government is going to borrow and be paid to do it is if the Federal Reserve is the one doing the paying. So whatever American citizens would gain from negative rates right, as far as the taxpayer, because obviously as taxpayers, they're on the hook to pay the interest on the national debt. And so if instead of paying interest on the national debt, they collect interest on the national debt, right, with the negative rate. So they would win in that perspective. But if the Federal Reserve is losing a fortune on paying the negative rate, well, then that's the American public, because how is the Federal Reserve getting all the money to make these negative rate loans? They're creating it out of thin air. They're printing it. They're monetizing the debt. So they're creating massive inflation. They are debasing the purchasing power of money in order to enable the negative rates. So what we're doing is we're substituting legitimate financing of debt with debt monetization by a central bank. Now that is not a gift. That is a curse. That is going to destroy the economy. Now, one of the things that's so interesting and ironic about Donald Trump basically beating the drums, you know, pretty much demanding negative interest rates, is that when he was running for president, and he was very critical of Janet Yellen because she left interest rates at zero. And he said that that was artificial, that that was being done for political reasons, that they were just trying to make uh, Obama looked good to blow up a stock market bubble and that this wasn't right. Uh, and the reason that he didn't reappoint Janet Yellen was because he didn't want somebody who would be doing political things. That was what people believe. That's what he was saying. You know, there were people who thought, oh, Trump wants a gold standard. He's a hard money guy, right? He was saying some of that to kind of appeal to those voters, both in the primary uh, you know, probably even more in the primary because he had to win the primary. And that's certainly a block of the Republican voters or hard money guys. Uh, you know, he appealed to a lot of the Ron Paul people. He probably got a lot of votes in the primary that might have gotten to Rand, went to Trump because Trump really adopted uh, some of that type of rhetoric that appealed to the Ron Paul guys. And, and, and they actually went to, to Trump because they maybe thought that he uh, had a better chance of bringing uh, that to uh to Washington or to the country than, than, than Rand did. But the irony of it is, so here you had candidate Trump saying that 0% interest rates were too low. Now you have Trump, who's president, saying that 0% interest rates are too high. They're not low enough. 
We're at zero right now, and Trump is saying we need to go lower. We need to be negative, right? So it's a complete 180. He is now championing, he is now demanding that which he criticized to become president. Now he's demanding it as president because he knew that the Fed was keeping interest rates artificially low to make Obama look good. And now he wants the Fed to keep interest rates even lower to make him look good, right? He wants to get uh, reelected and he thinks that negative interest rates will help him. He thinks that negative interest rates will prop up the stock market. And that's what he wants. He doesn't care about making America great again. Uh, he wants a second term and he doesn't care how much damage the Fed has to do to the economy in order to buy him that term. In fact, I noticed today uh, online that the betting odds now on the Democrats uh, retaking the Senate is now an even money bet. And very few people thought that that was going to happen. Even people who thought that Trump may not get reelected still thought that the Republicans would hold the Senate. Uh, and now it looks like at least it's an even money bet that they won't. And I don't even think the stock market has begun to price that in. I mean, they're not even pricing in uh, the Republicans losing the White House, let alone losing the White House and the U.S. Senate. Uh, but I think the possibility of those things uh, is getting higher. So one, right, we had Powell uh, dampening expectations for negative rates. So that was weighing on the market. But probably what weighed even heavier on the markets was his very somber outlook for the U.S. economy. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen or heard uh, Powell uh, this negative on the economy. And remember, you know, when we were already obviously in a recession, right? We were already shutting down the economy and it should have been obvious that we were in recession. Powell was out there saying that he thought that we would avoid recession. So he is always very optimistic when he talks about the prospects for the U.S. economy, whether he believes it or not, uh, he's always, you know, putting a smiley face on everything and looking at, you know, the glass half full. Well, that wasn't the Powell who was speaking yesterday. He was very, very concerned about the depth of this recession, about the recovery not being as strong as people think or people are hoping for. Uh, so he had a very negative outlook on the economy. Now, the truth is, as negative as he was, he was still too optimistic. I mean, it's actually going to be much worse uh, than uh, Powell is, is suggesting. But the fact that he is this worried now, I mean, things must really be bad for Powell to be worried. After all, it was pretty bad when he wasn't worried at all. Uh, so I think that's a sign that there's a lot of information now that Powell is looking at, and he can't help uh, but be honest about how bad things are. But the bigger problem was after his negative assessment of the economy, he basically came out and said, this is why we need massive fiscal stimulus, as if we don't already have that. We need even more, right? Because he said, hey, we can't go negative. We're already at zero. And so there's nothing else that we can do except monetize larger deficits, which is basically what Powell was asking Congress to provide. He was saying we need bigger government stimulus. We need more money uh, creation. We need bigger QE. So the Fed is certainly willing to do more QE. What they're saying for now is they're not willing to bring the Fed funds negative, but they're willing to do even more QE than they've already committed to. And they're basically challenging Congress to go out and run even larger deficits to stimulate this economy because 
Uh, Powell is saying it's going to be so bad if we don't get this stimulus that we need the stimulus. Don't worry about the deficits because I got your back. I'm going to print whatever money is necessary uh, to fund those deficits. And when you have a Fed chairman basically egging on the Congress to run bigger deficits, I mean, basically leading the charge of fiscal responsibility, right? Instead of taking away the punch bowl, just pouring all the alcohol in and encouraging everybody to drink, that is what the Fed chairman is doing now. Now, of course, maybe Powell actually thinks that all this deficit spending and money printing is going to stave off a recession. It's not. I mean, it could delay uh, the, you know, the, the depression or delay the worst part of it, right? But it's not going to stop it. It's actually going to make it worse making government bigger, running bigger deficits, printing more money is going to make the situation worse. So as bad as it's going to be, it's actually going to be even worse because uh, the government is likely to do exactly what Powell says they need to do uh, to prevent it from being as bad as he thinks it will be. And instead, it's going to make it even worse. In fact, you had Chuck Schumer um, was on television today. And he basically said, hey, look, we got a choice to make here, right? The government has a choice. We could do nothing and things are going to get really bad or we can do something and, and they won't be as bad or whatever. But he's right. There's a choice, but he's kind of got them wrong, right? Because the real choice is either the government does nothing and it gets bad or they do something and they make it worse. Because everything the government wants to do is going to make it worse. In fact, the only thing they can do is undo what they've already done, right? They have to reverse the damage uh, to the extent that they can. They need to shrink government. They need to make government smaller by cutting government spending. Uh, they need to reduce regulation where they can. I mean, the economy had a tough time affording all this regulation when it was healthy, or at least healthier than it is now, now that it's totally sick. Uh, it, it's even more difficult. So we need to reduce the burden that government places on the private sector by cutting spending and by, by cutting regulation. But that's not the government doing anything. That's just undoing what it's already done. What we need is for the free market to do something. But, you know, give you an example of this way of thinking. You know, I, I think it was yesterday or today, I forget when, when, I, when I saw him on, but it was Senator Rob Portman. I was trying to remember who it was. Senator Rob Portman. And basically what Portman said we need to do is he said we need to counteract the damage done by the CARES Act, right? And not necessarily in those words, but <laughs> Rob Portman mentioned the, the problem that businesses are having because they can't get their workers to come back to work because they would take a pay cut because people are making more money on unemployment when you combine their regular unemployment benefits with the $600 a week federal supplement, when you add those two benefits together, for a lot of people, it exceeds what they would earn if they went back to work. So what idiot wants to give up a vacation to go back to work and then earn less money working than he was being paid to take a vacation? Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, So what Portman suggested, right, rather than repealing the CARES Act, or at least fixing it, doing something, right, this is what this genius came up with. He now wants another government program to pay people to forego their unemployment benefits and go back to work. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. Now, the number that he used was $450, right? So, because I guess he wants to pretend that it's going to save the government money. So instead of people not working and collecting $600 a week, they can go back to work, but still get $450 a week in addition to their salary, right? But of course, they're going to lose their regular state unemployment benefits when they go back to work. So depending on how much their salary was in relation to that, you kind of figure out where the numbers are. But the idea was, well, people would rather have $450 to work than $600 not to work. Well, first of all, I wouldn't be so sure because number one, there are a lot of people who probably were going to go back to work anyway. Right? And now why, did, why should they get an extra $450 a week to do something they were going to do anyway? So that's a complete waste of money. That's going to cost the government uh, money. But there are a lot of other expenses that people incur when they go to work that they avoid when they don't work. Right. And so the minute you accept that four hundred and fifty dollars and go back to work, well, now you have to pay the commuting costs or whatever else. Or if you have kids that need uh, child care, you got to pay somebody to watch your kids. That's going to cost you money. Of course, the summer is coming up. A lot of the kids would be out of school anyway. But the biggest thing that you give up by going back to work is your free time. I mean, especially during the summer. I mean, who's not going to want a paid summer vacation? It's a great time uh, to spend uh, time with your kids. Uh, instead of, uh, you know, you're not sending them to summer camp. These things are probably closed. You don't have daycare. Everything is shut down. You got your kids. Uh, you might as well stay home. And of course, by staying home, you don't have to subject yourself to the potential health risks of being at work or having to deal with all the, the, the new conditions of social distancing. So I still think even if the government were paying people $450 to forego the $600 they get not working, I still think a lot of people would would collect the $600 and not work. But the bottom line is two wrongs don't make a right. You don't fix one bad government program by enacting another bad government program to try to counterbalance it. Just admit that the CARES Act was a mistake and fix your mistake. Don't double down and try to pay people right to work that you've already paid not to work. But, you know, uh, Portman recognizes the problem. You know, there were some Republicans who saw the problem, but they didn't care enough about it to derail the bill. They were too worried about the political consequences of denying people something for nothing, right, that they had to pass it anyway. And so now we have to deal uh, with these consequences and the businesses have to deal with these consequences because their workers are going to get more money not working. You know, by the way, while I'm, I'm on that topic too, I mean, I, I keep looking at all these reports of um, of uh, businesses and how they're preparing uh, to reopen and still have social distancing. You know, and, and I'm looking at, you know, restaurants or casinos and all all I can think is, there's no way I want to go there. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, 
people go to restaurants, it's not about eating. I mean, if you just need to eat, you don't need to go to a restaurant, right? People go to restaurants for the experience, it's for the atmosphere. You know, uh, it's a social experience, right? You know, you wanna be out with other people and you wanna enjoy the atmosphere. Uh, but when all that is compromised by all this social distancing and all this, uh, you know, uh, 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 disinfecting and sanitizing and this whole ritual, you know, when having people's temperature taken and wearing masks. I mean, all I can think of is this experience doesn't sound too enticing to me. Uh, I think most people will say, you know what? I'm just not gonna go to a restaurant. I mean, what's the point? I mean, maybe I'll get takeout, maybe I'll order in, but why dine? I mean, because people overpay, right? When you go to a restaurant, the food's expensive at a sit-down restaurant because you're not paying for the food. You're paying for the experience and all that. And look at the alcohol. Look how much people overpay when they buy alcohol uh, at a restaurant. But, you know, so you're not going to go there just for the alcohol and the food. You're going to go there for the ambiance and the experience. And if the experience is going to stink because of social distancing, well, then you're not even going to go. And of course, all these restaurants are going to have to charge much higher prices to the people who do go. So you're going to have a, a worse experience and you're going to pay more money to endure it. It just doesn't make sense, right? And, I, you know, all the amusement parts, all this stuff, these people are dreaming if they think they can operate their businesses uh, with these social uh, distancing rules or whatever they're going to call them. Once they incorporate it, they pretty much destroyed their businesses and their the customers aren't going to show up, even if they can get the workers back on the job, which is going to be a tough call. Uh, how are you going to get the customers uh, to want to come back? I, I just don't see it. You know, also, I was listening to Nancy Pelosi while I'm talking about um, uh, Congress, but Nancy Pelosi was saying, you know, we need another two or three trillion. And Chuck Schumer was pushing this. They have another whole big stimulus. Like I talked about it on my last podcast, $2,000 a month per person. And that's until the crisis is over, whenever that is, right? It's open-ended. But you see some of these proposals say that it's 2000 a month until the crisis is over. And then when the crisis ends, you get severance pay of another $1,000 a month for a year. So when the politicians finally say that we're back to normal and you can't have your $2,000 a month, they're still going to give you 1000 a month for another year. Why? But, th you know, this is what they're promising. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi was saying that we need to have special money for our heroes. She, she kept talking about the heroes that we have to reward. And all of the heroes were government employees, right? They're guys, people that work for state governments. I mean, she mentioned teachers, right? We have to give extra money to reward our heroes, meaning our teachers. I mean, why are the teachers heroes? I mean, what are they doing right now that is so heroic. I mean, some of the teachers are conducting remote classes from home, right? They're teaching the kids online, but I mean, is that heroic that they're doing that? I mean, that they're doing their job? I mean, how is that heroic? They're getting paid. You know, the heroes, the real heroes of the economy that no one wants to talk about are the entrepreneurs, are the businessmen that have to deal with all this. And it's the businessmen that make it possible for the teachers to get paid because they create 
uh, the jobs. They, they, they provide the goods and services. Without these jobs and these employment opportunities, there would be no tax revenue for the states to collect to then redistribute to, to the teachers or the firemen or the policemen. Those are the heroes. But of course, Nancy Pelosi wants to bribe all these government workers by, by classifying them as the heroes and they need more money. But again, you know, all of these states are broke, right? Because they're not collecting taxes right now. And one of the reasons is because they knew that they were gonna get bailed out by the federal government. I mean, I talked about the Swedish model before on the podcast where Sweden has not shut down their economy. Right. Why did Sweden make the choice that it did? I think it's because Sweden didn't have anybody to bail them out. I mean, Sweden's not part of the euro currency. Uh, they're not a state in the United States. So the Swedish government knew that it would have to bear the, the cost of whatever policy it decided on. So they actually did a legitimate cost-benefit analysis weighing the health risks with the economic risks and trying to figure out a rational response uh, to COVID-19. And that's what they did. But that's not what any of the U.S. states did, right? Because every state in the United States knew that they were not going to bear the costs of their orders to shut down or lock people down or shut down the economy because they knew that the federal government was going to come to the rescue, right? All the unemployed people, people who are being rendered unemployed by things that governors are doing and mayors are doing, the federal government provided all this extra money, right? It didn't come from the state treasury. It came from the federal treasury. So you had a third party. So the governors didn't give a damn about those costs because they didn't see that they were paying those costs. Same thing with all the businesses that are getting bailed out. Where is all the money coming from to bail out the businesses? It's coming from the federal government. And of course, now you have all of these states who actually want direct government money to help them pay the teachers and the firemen and, and the policemen because they're no longer collecting taxes from the jobs that they destroyed on purpose because they didn't give a damn about the cost because of that moral hazard. Every state knew that the federal government was gonna pick up the tab. What the Republicans should have done and what Trump should have done is made it clear from day one, I will not sign any bills to provide any emergency relief to anybody. So every state needs to make its own decision. If you want to lock down your population, if you want to order businesses closed, then you better be prepared to figure out how you're going to pay for it, how you're going to fund your payrolls, how you're going to deal with the economic damage, because you're not going to push it off on somebody else, right? And if Trump had done that, right, and Republicans had made it clear, then the governors and the mayors would have done a cost-benefit analysis on their approach because they would have had to bear the cost. And if the costs are worth bearing, then let them bear them. If California wants to shut down its economy through the summer, let California do it as long as California is willing to cover the cost. There's plenty of rich people in California. Tax them, right? If, that's, if you want money, if you want to shut down all the businesses, but don't push the cost off on you know, on another state, but that's what everybody is doing. We all have this moral hazard. So yes, there are benefits, health benefits to, you know, isolating everybody. 
But if you separate that from the cost, then you're not going to have rational decisions being made. And that is what's going on. And that is the difference between Sweden and the 50 states is Sweden had to deal with its consequences of its decisions. Whatever the costs were that the Swedish government made, Sweden was going to have to bear it. That's not what's happening. When they make decisions in Sacramento, they know that they're pushing the costs on to the federal taxpayer, not the, the, the taxpayers in, in, in Sacramento. You know, another comment too that Powell made yesterday that I thought was pretty scary, but not, not uh, surprising, was that Powell was basically saying, look, we can, we, we can print a lot of money and we don't have to worry about inflation, right? Because he said, we learned that, you know, there isn't really this trade-off between unemployment and inflation because we had really, really low unemployment. We had record low unemployment before COVID-19 and we didn't have any inflation. Therefore, we don't have to worry. We can keep on printing money and we don't have to worry if the unemployment rate comes down. It's just never going to cause inflation. So we can just print and print and print, which of course is a bunch of nonsense. Not the part where employment causes inflation because that that was always nonsense inflation is not caused by people working it never was right when people are working and they're producing more that helps keep prices down right it's when people are not productive and not producing uh, that you have a reduction in the supply of goods but what causes inflation is the federal reserve it's never caused by the private sector it's only caused by the government when the government prints money that's what causes inflation. And the Federal Reserve was causing a lot of inflation before COVID-19, and they're causing even more now. It's just that the consequences of all that inflation had not manifested itself yet uh, you know, in a dramatic increase in consumer prices. They did manifest in a dramatic increase in asset prices, uh, and asset prices are much higher today than they would otherwise be absent all that inflation, but the inflation has already been created. The damage has already been done. It's only a question of time uh, before that is felt in uh, in consumer prices. And in fact, uh, on, on uh, CNBC today, I was watching and they had um, Paul McCulley, who used to be with PIMCO, and I forget where he is now. He's, I think, an economics uh, guy, or you know, but he's he's not at PIMCO, but he was at you know this you know PIMCO's a big uh, bond shop, and um, so he was actually being asked, and I forget who was interviewing him on CNBC, if he was worried about all these debts, right? If there's anything to worry about, yeah, I know we need to borrow all this money, right? But is there, should we be concerned about some kind of negative consequence in the future? I mean, if we keep running these massive deficits and borrowing all this money, isn't there a chance that somewhere down the road, uh, this could become a problem, that it could be a problem for the dollar, it could be a problem, it could push up interest rates, that you know the dollar could lose its status of the reserve currency? I mean, does any of this worry you? And before uh, Paul McCulley got cut off, because they actually lost the feed, he was able to answer the question. He said, no, I'm not worried at all. That's not a concern. That's never going to happen. Right. So he's basically reassuring whoever is dumb enough to watch CNBC. Of course, I watch it to get material from my podcast. Uh, but I also like to know what foolish people are doing with their money because it helps me know what to do with mine. But um, he's reassuring everybody. There's nothing to worry about. Right. It doesn't matter. There is no limit. We can print as much money as we want. 
We can borrow as much money as we want, and there's never going to be a consequence. There's never an adverse consequence, right? There's no limit to how big the deficits can go. There's no limit to how much money we could print because there's never going to be a consequence of that action, right? The world is never going to hold us accountable. The dollar will be the reserve currency no matter how much we debase it, no matter how many dollars we create. We never have to worry about consumer prices going up. We never have to worry about long-term interest rates going up. And of course, this attitude is probably, you know, the, the norm on Wall Street. Most people are not worried about those things. That's why the price of gold is not already five or $10,000. I mean, it was up 15 bucks today. It's around 1730. The chart looks fantastic for the price of gold. Gold at GDX uh, closed today up, I, I think at a new seven year high. Uh, so gold and gold stocks uh, look great on a chart. They look like they're breaking out just as the stock market is rolling over again, uh, you know, uh, reversing that uh, bear market rally. In fact, even today, as the stock market recovered, uh, the gold stocks held strong. They didn't sell off as the stock market uh, went up. They held on to the gains that they got early on when the stock market fell. And when the stock market came back, they didn't surrender those gains, which is a very, very strong sign. But the reason that gold isn't much higher already is because so many people share Paul McCulley's outlook, right? That it doesn't matter, that there's nothing to worry about. Look. A lot of people have been lulled into this false sense of complacency because so far, so good, right? I mean, we've been running these huge deficits. We've been printing all this money. Look, the dollar index is at 100, right? The CPI has been you know, no more than 2% a year. Long-term interest rates are record lows. Look, we got $25 trillion national debt and interest rates are at a record low. So obviously, it doesn't matter how big the deficits are. We're never going to be held accountable. Right, because obviously nobody would have believed that we could get the debt up this high, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, people would have thought impossible because interest rates would skyrocket, the dollar would crash. That's what most people would have thought. But when you have so many years of that not happening, people get lulled into this sense that it's never going to happen. Right, it was the same type of attitude people had in the real estate market before the bubble popped in 08. Right when they were, uh, they said real estate prices are never going to go down because they hadn't seen them go down. Doesn't mean that they can't, but people think that the trees are going to grow to the sky. And just because we've gotten away with these deficits for this many years, it doesn't mean that we can do it indefinitely. Again, I said this before COVID nineteen. Anything uh, that can go wrong will, and nothing that can't last forever will, and that includes running up these debts. There is a point at which the crisis occurs. But the problem is, right, you don't know where that is, right? You don't know where that line is until after you've crossed it, right? Because you don't know that, you know, it's a problem until it's a crisis, right? Because all of a sudden it's going to happen, right? All of a sudden you're going to reach the breaking point where the dollar tanks and long-term interest rates spike and then the party's over, but to assume the party is never going to end, that it's going to rage on indefinitely. I mean, I can see some people maybe thinking, you know what? You're right, right? Eventually, there's going to be a price to pay for this, right? The piper is going to have to be paid, but we think that's still a long way away, right? I can see somebody saying that, but McCulley saying it's not a concern, it's never going to happen. That makes no sense. 
What would make sense is just thinking we have a lot of time left, except how do you know? How do you know we have a lot of time left? I mean, we had a lot of time left 10, 20 years ago. People were kicking the can down the road back then. How do you know that there's a lot of time left now? You don't. This whole thing can fall apart tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow, we could be crossing that line right now and we just don't know it yet. Right? Tomorrow, the whole thing could fall apart. Now, I agree the odds are that it probably won't fall apart tomorrow. But one of these days, it is going to fall apart tomorrow because one of these days is going to be the day before the day that everything falls apart. But people aren't going to know. But the warning signs are there. Right. And they're they're obvious for anybody who is smart enough to look for him. I guess a guy like Paul McCulley, you know, he's not even looking. Right. He doesn't think there's anything to worry about. He you know, and this guy was managing all these bonds. I mean, if this is the the attitude of bond managers that they don't give a damn about how big the deficits are, they're not worried at all about inflation eroding away the value of their bonds. They're not worrying about the faults or rising interest rates. I mean, this shows you. I mean, how dangerous it is to leave your money with these guys, to let people manage money for you who are so clueless about the risks uh, that you're facing with the money that they're managing. In fact, one of the other reasons that stocks were so weak yesterday uh, was David Tepper, you know, who's a billionaire hedge fund guy. He was interviewed on CNBC and he was echoing a lot of the gloom and doom type outlook uh, that Jerome Powell was expressing. And he was saying the market was expensive. I don't see any value here. It looks very risky to me. The tech stocks are as expensive as they were in 1999-2000. Even though the financials were on the lows, he said, I don't want to touch the financials. I think they're, you know, they have a lot of downside risks. So he was talking very negatively about how the market was expensive, how there were no bargains there. And that was helping to push the market down. Now, for all I know, David Tepper was out today buying the financials when they cracked again this morning. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe he goes on television and he, you know, obviously he's an influential guy and he's saying all these negative things about the financials. I mean, maybe he's doing that because he wants to drive the prices down so he could buy the financials. I don't know. I mean, maybe he's not doing that. I have, I'm just, you know, guessing here. Um, but I agree with everything he was saying. And, you know, if he was buying the financials, my guess is he'll probably trade out of them because they are in a lot of trouble. You know, and one of the other sectors that's in a lot of trouble is the home builders. And there was a guy that was on CNBC today because today was kind of the opposite. Yesterday, you had a lot of gloom or not a lot, maybe a lot for CNBC. You know, you had some. But today it was mostly optimistic talk. I thought I wrote down the name of the guy here that. Oh, yeah. Jim Paulson. Jim Paulson. And he was talking about the financials and the home builders. He was saying you got to buy the banks uh, and you got to buy the home builders. Now, obviously, I mean, if you bought the banks this morning when he was saying this, I mean, you got a nice day trade uh, because I think the banks were still down this morning when he made these positive comments on the banks. Uh, but the fact that he was so optimistic, not only on the banks, but on the home builders, I mean, really shows me how clueless so many people are uh, about the gravity of this situation. I mean, why anybody would be recommending home builders right now is beyond me. Because if you look at these home building stocks, they have barely declined. It's not like these things have really been beaten up, you know, like the airlines or the cruise ships or the banks, and you're trying to bottom fish. I mean, these stocks are, you know, barely off their highs. Look at a 10-year chart. These stocks have a long way to fall because people aren't going to be building homes 
right? I mean, just, just the cost of constructing homes is going to go up. Ultimately, materials are going to go up. It's going to cost more money because, you know, you have to, you know, have social distancing for your construction crews or whatever. But the cost of building is going to go up. Uh, and people are broke. Real estate prices are going to be falling. There's going to be a lot of homes for sale that have already been built, you know. And so there's going to be no way that the home builders are going to be able to build a new home and sell it in a way that will compete with all the homes that are already there uh, that are about to come on the market that aren't necessarily on the market now, but are going to be on the market. I mean, a lot of these home builders are going to go out of business. I think there's going to be massive consolidation in the home building industry. So for people to come out there and say, yeah, buy the home builders. I mean, you have absolutely no uh, understanding of the, the situation that the U.S. economy is in. If you think that we're going to go back to building homes, I mean, we've, we've barely stopped building, right? So this is the kind of advice that a lot of people are being given in the mainstream is to, is to buy these stocks. And obviously, if that's what they're being told, there is a lot of uh, downside risk in these stocks. Then there was another guy. I forget who this was on CNBC. This was yesterday. This was rich. So this guy was congratulating um, Powell on, on, on what a great job the Fed had done. And, and they were talking about Warren Buffett and like he's got a lot of cash on the sidelines and he's negative and, you know, he doesn't want to buy. Uh, and the the guy was saying, you know, that just means that the Fed has done a good job, right? Because Warren Buffett is waiting for a bargain and because of the Fed, he couldn't find the bargain. And that was a good thing, that the Fed's job was to make sure that companies don't go bankrupt, right? So guys like Warren Buffett can't swoop in and buy them out of bankruptcy, right? So the Fed is supposed to make sure that companies don't go bankrupt and the Fed is supposed to make sure that stocks don't get too cheap, right? Because we don't want people with cash like Warren Buffett to be able to get too good a deal on the stocks. So it's the Fed's job to make sure that stocks don't get cheap enough, that they're a real bargain for guys like Buffett. And so because the Fed was able to intervene and prevent the market from getting to a level where Warren Buffett thought there was good value, and because a lot of companies that might have gone bankrupt were saved by the Fed, this guy was saying that means the Fed did its job. The Fed did a good job. And of course, I forget who was interviewing him on CNBC, but the, the, the lady that was, you know, the, the host agreed with everything this guy was saying. I mean, how can anybody say it's the Fed's job to make sure that stocks don't get too cheap or that businesses don't go bankrupt? I mean, where is that in the Federal Reserve Act that that is a mission, right? I mean, all they can point to is their mission is supposedly price stability, which they've now redefined as prices going up every year, uh, and maximum employment. Uh, and, and those are their mandates, right? Where is there a mandate to make sure that stocks don't get too cheap? Where is there a mandate to make sure that companies don't fail? I mean, why should the Federal Reserve be involved in, in, in the market? If a company's going to fail, let it fail. There's a reason it's failing. It's not up to the Fed to come in and save it. The market is, is, is doing something for a reason. The company is, is, is losing money. Uh, they, they have too much debt, whatever it is. Yes, there's an ex exogenous event that's going on, but it's not up to the Fed to save companies uh, every time something happens that puts those that are you know, uh, marginal out of business. Look, not every company would, would, would go bankrupt during COVID-19. Some would. 
but it's not up to the Fed to save them. And what is this idea that it's not up to the Fed to let stocks get too cheap? I mean, where is that written into the into their mandate? I mean, first of all, if it's the Fed's job to make sure that stocks don't go too low, are they supposed to prevent them from going too high? Because if that's part of their job, they've done a lousy job there. I mean, stocks are way too high, but it's not up to the Federal Reserve to set stock prices to say they're too high or too low. Now, they shouldn't be inflating a bubble. They should look at an overpriced stock market as an indication that their policies have fueled the bubble and they should stop doing that. But they're not supposed to be deliberately trying to cause stock prices to go in either direction. They're supposed to let the market determine stock prices. But we know that the Fed embarked on this policy of QE deliberately to create a wealth effect. So the Fed wanted stock prices to go up. That's why they don't want stock prices to go down. So I think this guest was right in that it was a goal of the Fed to prevent stock prices from falling because that was deflating their bubble. That was producing a reverse wealth effect. But this is not indicative of the Fed doing it right it's indicative of the Fed doing it wrong. They never should have deliberately inflated a stock market bubble in the first place. They never should have tried to build a phony recovery on the foundation of an asset bubble because only because they made that mistake that now they're making an additional mistake of trying to prevent the bubble from deflating, trying to put more air into it to prevent all that phony wealth from evaporating. Now, I think that's about all I wanted to cover Uh, On today's podcast, we get some more economic data coming out tomorrow. What I have been doing, I've been in a habit of going through uh, the Q&As on Fridays. So again, if there's any more uh, unanswered questions, I noticed a lot of people put up the questions in the chat box. Oh, by the way, I did record an interview with Valuetainment. Uh, It's up on... uh, on YouTube. It's got, last I checked, it had a little over a quarter of a million views. I think they just posted it yesterday. So it's a little over a two-hour interview. It's uh, nothing new. If you're a regular listener to my podcast, I'm not really saying anything new uh, during this two hours, whether you want to check it out or not. I mean, can't hurt. But certainly, you know, I I tried to get a lot of uh, information in Uh, during this interview because hopefully I'm being exposed to a new audience of people who might not follow me and so to the extent that you've got some friends or other people that you're you know you're trying to encourage to listen to my podcast this might be a good interview uh, to have them check out they actually added a lot of uh, graphics and and produced and edited uh, the interview so it's it's good it's a good you know so it's a good introduction uh, to Peter Schiff 101 uh, so yeah you can watch it yourself but I think more importantly uh, try to share the link uh, to this uh, interview with other people and hopefully then they'll they'll move from that to become regular listeners of my podcast. 